Welcome to Timeout Bulls, driven by Lexus. You can visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the redesigned Lexus. Hi, this is your host, Chuck Swirsky. Well, what can I say about Neil Funk? I mean, the man has been the play-by-play voice of the Chicago Bulls since the 91-92 season. He has left just a strong foundation for broadcasters who have come into the NBA. I mean, Neil knows everyone. When Neil walks into an arena, that's Neil Funk, Philadelphia 76ers. That's Neil Funk, Chicago Bulls. That's Neil Funk, Kansas City Kings. Okay, maybe a little bit on the Kings, but you know what I'm talking about. The man has been an NBA broadcaster for like nearly 40 years. And that's probably give or take a few years, but I mean, Neil has seen it and done it all. I think you're going to really enjoy where Neil has come from in the good old days of broadcasting NBA ball to where he is today, a future Hall of Fame member in Springfield, Mass. So let's join our timeout Bulls with the voice of the Bulls, Neil Funk. So Neil, here we are doing a podcast. Now, in your wildest dreams... (laughs) And when you first started broadcasting, if someone said, hey, Neil, you know what? In your lifetime, we're going to have cell phones, we're going to have internets, and you're going to be on a podcast. I, you know what, Chuck? When I started, I used to carry around a big box called a Marty. Do you remember the Marty? I don't even know what that stood for. What is a Marty? I, well, it was for a remote broadcast. So if you were, you know, in those days, back in those days in the NBA, the announcers carried their own equipment. And what this Marty was, I'm not quite sure, but no, podcasts, that, that never entered the equation. It was all hook up all this stuff, and it was heavy stuff. Now everything's little. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, Neil, because obviously, I mean, we're very fortunate at the NBA level. We have a great radio engineer. You work with Bill Carambellis on the radio side before he went to TV nine years ago. And on television, you have a floor manager, you got a producer, you got a director in the truck, you sit next to Stacy. So we're very, very fortunate to have a lot of things that are in preparation for our broadcast. What was it like broadcasting, even prior to NBA games when you started in the mid-70s? What was it like as far as equipment and what you have to do to prepare for a game? Well, everything was done over the phone. There was nothing out in cyberspace. So, so you would bring the phone, uh, a you'd digital bring a, phone? You'd bring a digital phone or a, a rotary phone, rotary a phone. dial phone, a dial-up, and you had a couple of other little pieces of equipment that you would hook up to a phone line in a high school gym or a co- or at the University of Illinois or wherever you might be traveling. And then you would dial up the station on this phone that you were also carrying. And they would then switch it over somewhere in the station. And that's how you would get on the air. Everything was going back and forth down a phone line. So there was none of this high tech stuff, uh, you know, high def radio and wireless stuff. I mean, the stuff today is amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I would say the equipment I carried around was like it weighed, you know, probably 60, 70 pounds worth of just stuff you were carrying around. So, and you had to hook it up yourself. I mean, it wasn't like there was, a, you got there and there was an engineer to do it. So I can remember even when I first got to the NBA, crawling around behind stands, trying to find the phone line and make sure you had enough cord to come out and I mean, it was a, it was a totally different world then. And, and so, Neil, when you would carry this equipment around and you would have to hook things up, 
Were you able to then communicate with the radio station like during the game, or would you have to use another phone, or how well, did that work? It, well, you would use the phone initially, and here's how what the, what you would hear. You had a little I had a little transistor radio. Now this is before the NBA, and with a earpiece, and so I would put the earpiece in my ear, and I would hear when they went to commercial break. I would hear. I mean, it's kind of like the talk back now mm-hmm. that we have now. So, but I was actually listening on a transistor radio to what I was saying, and and then I would know when they went to commercial break, when they came back from commercial break, um, and you had to make sure you had good batteries in the transistor, and you, and you hoped you were in some area or in a uh, gymnasium that where the signal came in to the transistor radio, or else you were really uh, you were there was no way to know. You know, other than time it with a stopwatch. What's the craziest building you had to deal with in terms of noise or, wow, like I'm not sure we're going to be able to get this broadcast together? Well, the, 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 two, the two that I can remember, one was when the New Jersey Nets were playing at Rutgers, and that's where, that was their home building. They had no other building. The Meadowlands wasn't built yet. They had just moved down from Long Island, so they were playing at Rutgers, and you it was it was a college gym but with bleachers, and you actually had to go down around behind the bleachers, crawl on your hands and knees back there, and then there would be you know maybe twenty phone jacks for all the visiting college teams that came in and stuff. Find the right phone jack, hook it up, run the wire out through the bleachers along the floor and get yourself hooked up that I mean that was and you'd be like in a coat and tie by the time you got done you were sweating and and you weren't going back there I mean again behind the bleachers so you hoped you hooked it up right the first time because I mean it was ridiculous and then the other one was the old Boston Garden where you had to have an engineer it was the only place in the league that you had to have an engineer you had to use their building engineer and what was that union? It was, was union. It? it was union. So you, even though I carried equipment back in those days, when you got to Boston, you didn't have to bring the equipment in because he supposedly had everything set up. Well, I got there on a Sunday afternoon uh, for a Nets. I believe it was the Nets or Philly, one of the two, uh, Boston game, and he didn't show up. The engineer didn't show up, so I had no equipment, which was on the bus, which had gone somewhere to park. I had no equipment, so I had to do, they brought up a regular push-to-talk phone, a regular phone, but, you know, with a push-to-talk button on the handset. So I, for the next three hours, I had to, (laughs) I had to hold the the push-to-talk button down and do the game on a regular telephone, like I'm, you know, talking to you at your house or something, and I'm on my phone, and that's how, for three hours, I did it. Finally, I figured out that if I got some tape at halftime, yes. I could tape the button down, the push the talk button, and just keep it down. So, but there there was a lot of crazy stuff back then. I mean, wild uh, stuff getting on the air, and and what happened when you had an issue, as as you said, we're lucky we have engineers who find the problem, fix it, and get you back on the air. In those days, I mean, I I mean, I wasn't a technical guy at all. So if we went off, I had no idea what to do. So, Neil, because people know your background prior to the Bulls, you called Philadelphia twice. 
I know you were in Kansas City, but you also called the Nets and you went to Syracuse. So a lot of people assume that you're from the East, but that's not the case. You're from Indiana. Yeah, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. That's where I grew up. Um, In fact, you're so popular. Like a few years ago, you missed a playoff game with the Bulls and the Wizards because they named the school after you. Well, they didn't name the school after me. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one, though. They probably should have. But, uh, yeah, I I grew up in Indianapolis, and and, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, I don't get back there all that often other than when we play there and maybe occasionally in the summer. I still have a lot of good friends who live there, uh, but most of my family has gone to other environments, so uh, I don't really have a lot of reason to go over there other than, than for work. So, um, But, yeah, I grew up in the Midwest, so when my first job uh, in, in broadcasting was in Danville, Illinois. And uh, so it was kind of ironic that my first job was in Danville, and then I ended up uh, late in my career uh, in Chicago, uh, so back in Illinois. So I probably spent as much time in Illinois as I spent in Indiana. So all of us, to some degree, Neil, uh, some more than others, did a lot of high school sports. And uh, especially for basketball in Indiana, uh, maybe some tournaments. How many games did you call in one day back in the well, day? Well, my my, rec- my personal record uh, was in Danville, Illinois. I, I For a number of years, I also did the Indiana State High School basketball tournament. But those games weren't piled on top of you. And, and when I was in Danville, they had a holiday tournament uh, right before Christmas. And I, if memory serves, there were, I think, maybe 16 teams and it was not single elimination. I mean, it was you had to get beat twice, so you went to the loser's bracket if you lost in your first game. So there were games that started at, I think they started at 9 a.m. or 9.30 in the morning, and they went till the last game tipped at like 8.30 at night. So in a high school game, I mean, they're, you know, eight-minute quarters. And I think my personal record was I did nine – high school games in one in one single day nine <laughs> games and then that was on Friday Saturday I did a high school game in the morning a University of Illinois game at one o'clock and then came back and did the last two high school games at this holiday extravaganza wow and it was it was interesting because um, it was the uh, Roger Powell jr you remember yes. was briefly with the Bulls. His father was a star, and uh, I can remember him playing in that tournament. Um, there was, so I saw a lot of these guys. Ricky Green was a Hirsch. I think he played in that tournament. Um, so but I did. In those days, it was nothing. And you know this, Chuck. When you're when you're starting out, you're willing to do anything. I mean, go no to the question. county fair, yep. work work election night, doing election coverage, which you knew nothing about. Um, you know, remotes every Saturday morning from a sporting goods store uh, and then go right to a high school game or, uh, you know, uh, to a University of Illinois game. So, I mean, but I think my personal best was nine. Okay, so then on on that note, non-NBA, the best game you've ever called as far as excitement or just something happened out of nowhere. But I'm not talking NBA now. We'll get into the NBA 
but on the high school or collegiate level, at whether it's basketball, football, baseball, track and field, what, what, what was the moment game that was non-NBA related? I, I think uh, I, I can remember a couple of Illinois-Indiana games uh, when George McGinnis uh, uh, and Downing were at Indiana. Uh, and Illinois was pretty good in, in those days. Uh, and I can remember a couple of those Big Ten games were, <clears throat> excuse me, were terrific battles between two real rivals. And then uh, McGinnis, of course, being a heralded high school guy, and Downing was his high school teammate. And the and, buildings <clears throat> were old oh, barns. Oh, the building, buildings were old barns. So there was some character to <clears throat> them. There was character to them. Uh, the, the crowds were into it. Um, and, I, and I guess, you know, I mean, the, the highlight for me of high school games was always the Illinois State High School basketball tournament, um, only because, uh, and this, this dates me a little bit, I, I saw so many great teams, the Quinn Buckner teams at Thornridge, um, the, the Ricky Green's team at Hirsch, Jack Sigma's team. Mm-hmm. Um, at St. Anne. At yep. St. Anne. And... Uh, so I saw all of those guys, the great Ron Felling Lawrenceville teams um, with Scheidler and, and those guys. It was, I, I saw it, but the, the interesting part was, and the thing that really killed me was when I got to the NBA, I was like, I would see Ricky Green playing in Utah and I would you know, go up to him and I'd say, you know, Ricky, I did your high school games. <laughs> and he's like looking at me like, how old is this guy? But that's not nearly as bad as now where you see you did a, a guy's games and now his son, mm-hmm. you're doing his games. And that's, I mean, to me, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Steph Curry or whoever, I mean, you, you did their father's games and now you're doing their games? Yeah. Uh, I guess it means you've been around a long time. So, so Neil, your first NBA game, do you remember it? Broadcast? I do. Uh, the first one I did was a preseason game in uh, Buffalo, New York, at the Odd, in the old Odd in I Buffalo, the New York. Game there with DePaul uh, and Niagara. Yeah, Randy Smith was the uh, star, and uh, yeah, one of their stars. Uh, they had some others. I think McAdoo. Gosh, and now you're asking me to go way back. Uh, the Sixer team was uh, Doug Collins, George McGinnis, Julius Irving, World Be Free, Lloyd Free at the time, uh, Daryl Dawkins. Harvey Catching. So this is mid-70s. Yeah, this is 76. And that was my first game was in the odd in Buffalo. And I remember that. I remember looking at Randy Smith and going, oh, my gosh, is this guy tough? (laughs) Holy cow, I didn't know these guys were that tough. But, uh, yeah, so I started, you know, I mean, Doug was on that team. And, uh, I mean, now you're now you're dragging right, so me here, way back. Here's, here's here's a question for you, and we this is not scripted, folks. Neil Funk joining us right here on uh, Timeout Bulls, our weekly podcast. Can you recite every basketball analyst you have worked with from day one? Because I know you came into the league probably didn't have a basketball, right. but can you like from from Philadelphia days all the way to the Bulls? Okay, let me let's see. We'll see how this goes. Uh, I worked with the late and great Bill Campbell uh, early in my career in Philly. Uh, Then uh, in Kansas City, I was solo. I had no, uh, and this is another topic we could probably get into, and that was the simulcast and 
having to do them by yourself. Yep. But so I didn't really work with anybody in Kansas City. But when so I went even back, when the games were on TV, and back in those days, if they played eighty-two games, chances are probably half, less than half, were on television. Well, no, not all eighty-two were on TV back in the seventies. In, in and those 80s. days, Chuck, in Kansas City, anyway, I think they had twenty games on yep. TV uh, approximately. And when they were on TV, it was a simulcast. So you but had I was, no ad TV. I analysts. had no analyst. We didn't even travel a TV pro, uh, TV producer. I was some guy from the truck that they had hired would come out and tell me where to stand for the open on TV, and then he'd disappear. You disappear. And my twenty five bucks, and that was it. Yeah, my producer was back in Kansas City. All right, so Kansas you didn't City. work on simulcast with anyone in Kansas no. City. But then when I got to to Philadelphia, I had. Uh, John Nash, this is going to be a who's who, uh, Chuck Daly, uh, Doug Collins, Steve Mix. Uh, who else did I have there? I had at least one more. I'm, I'm leaving somebody <laughs> out, Steve Mix. And then, uh, uh, yeah, and then in, uh, in I worked with Bill Raftery in, in New Jersey. Um, who else did I work with in Jersey? Uh, was Jeminski there? Was he, he, they were players? They, they, they were, were players. Playing. They okay. were playing. Yeah, I wish <laughs> they're now have gone on to terrific uh, careers so then in you, broadcasting. You went from Philly, Jersey, back to Philly. Uh, I, yeah, I was only in Jersey for two seasons, and that was only because I was having a little fight with uh, with Harold Katz, the owner of the Sixers. What was that about? Uh, I was really, you know, what it was over something that was really silly, and Harold and I were really good friends. Um, it was over, I was the director of broadcasting in Philly, and it was over him agreeing to a rights deal with um, uh, the people from Spectacore. Uh, unbeknownst to me, Prism was doing the games, and it's now Prism's become Comcast after it went through many different uh, iterations. But <clears throat> it... Uh, and so I was unhappy because I was doing both radio and TV. It was a simulcast in, in Philly. Um, and so they wanted to separate it. And it, So I was mad at Harold. So I ended up uh, going up to New Jersey, uh, but just for two seasons. And then Harold brought me back to, to Philly. So, um, and the two seasons in New Jersey were the two longest of my NBA career, and I should have known because your good friend Joe Tate yes. and our good friend Mel Proctor, who uh, Mel did the uh, Washington Bullets at the time, and, and Joe was uh, in Cleveland, had been in Cleveland a long time, but both of them went for one-year stints in Jersey. Same type of situation, had a little uh, disagreement in Cleveland and Washington, respectively. They lasted one season. I lasted two, and Joe to this day still doesn't know how I did it. Yes, so that's he true. told me. That's he told me. Joe told, Joe told me. He said, "Do not sign more than a one-year deal." Thanks for tuning in to Time Out Bulls. Lexus is proud to bring you this peek under the hood. The all-new Lexus RX is the perfect blend of chiseled design, aggressive performance, and luxury finishes. And with 44 inches of legroom, even our Bulls athletes would be comfortable in one. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive an RX today. Now, back to the show. So you're, you're back in Philly, and then uh, the 90-91 season is the final season 
for Jim Durham calling Bulls games. Correct. And so now the job's open. Where, did you pursue that? Did the Bulls come after you? And what well, made you leave Philadelphia? You, you know, I knew... Because, I mean, you were a household name. You were very well respected. Everyone knew Neil Funk in Philadelphia. Here's so this, a, was a, this was a major move, Neil. This wasn't just... Okay, you could have stayed in Philly for life. Here's, here's what was interesting. And uh, I'm going to say it was 1982. Uh, the Sixer job was open. And, and at that time, Harold Katz and Pat Williams, who was the general manager, had called me and asked me if I would come in. I was in Kansas City. Would I come in for an interview? I, I went for the interview, and they said, we have one other guy that, we are, that we're interviewing. Strangely enough, it turned out to be Jim Durham. Hmm. Uh, now, this is 82, and think about, you know, the Bulls were not very good during those that that time period. Uh, and so Jim came out. I ended up, uh, and I knew that Jim was going, and Jim knew that I was going into to interview. I ended up uh, taking that job in Philly, and Jim stayed in, in Chicago to continue a Hall of Fame career. Then, as you mentioned, uh, Jim, that would be 1991, would be Jim's last season here. And, and I, the first year the Bulls won and, and Jim and I, and let me go back even further than that, Jim and I had known each other since before either of us were in the NBA. Jim was doing games down in uh, Normal and, or Bloomington, and I was doing games in Champaign. Um, so we had known each other, and we had become very friendly, uh, during Jim's early NBA career, and then I came into the NBA. And uh, oh, let me just stop one thing. Jim actually, when I was in Kansas City, called me and said, hey, listen, Johnny Kerr and I have to go down and do an Illinois Big Ten game. Could you fill in for me? And he had me and he had Joe Tate. He had a couple of conflicts. So I actually had done a Bulls game back huh. in like 70 – Eight maybe or 79 I had actually done a Bulls game uh, Jerry Sloan was the coach and uh, I flew from Kansas City to Detroit and did a game uh, a Bulls game in Detroit in the uh, uh, Silverdome but anyway I digress no no go ahead. so uh, so I knew so yeah so I so Jim and I were good friends I knew Jim uh, that there were some issues uh, with and I'm not going to go into what those issues were, but I knew there were some issues, and that Jim might not come back. And uh, to be honest with you, as to whether they called me or I called them, I I, I don't remember. I remember talking to Jim uh, about the possibility of coming to Chicago. Uh, because I would never have, kind of, Jim said, don't, I would have not uh, done it. But anyway, as it turned out, it was the biggest, you know, biggest break of my career. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time here. So uh, I ended up getting the radio job and uh, uh, did radio for however many years it was. I, they fly by, so you don't even remember. But. Well, you, you had the good fortune of calling the NBA champion Philadelphia 76ers when right. they won the championship in, in 83. 83. Correct. So now all of a sudden, right there on the platter is a Bulls team coming off right. an NBA championship, beating the Lakers, and you got Michael Jordan, you got Scottie Pippen, 
you got Horace Grant, you got of course Pax, and you're thinking, well, whoa, well, okay. but yeah, and here's you know, Chuck, the the one thing after my first, this is where I say I've been lucky. My fir- very first year in the league was 1976-77. That was the year Philly and Portland played in the finals. So my very first year in the league, I got to call the NBA finals, and Portland ultimately won that series. Uh, and then in 82-83, in 83, uh, Philly won it, and again, I got to do the NBA finals. So I felt in in that regard, you know how many guys have been in the league for a long, long time? You know, Al McCoy, oh. Ralph Lawler, uh, that never got to call uh, one finals uh, game. Uh, well, I mean, Ralph, I mean, uh, Ralph Lawler never called no, the never called game. the finals Steve game. Steve Holman's been in what forty years? He hasn't right. called the Hawks finals game. So uh, and and Al McCoy called the finals game, but never won it. Yeah. So. I had, you know, been to the finals a couple of times and uh, as, a, as a broadcaster and watched my team win it in 83. So I, in that regard, I, I felt fulfilled. It wasn't like I was saying, oh, man, I got a chance now to, to get to the finals or whatever. But, but don't you think, Neil, even had you not called the finals game, your career, your career wouldn't have been – unfulfilling or empty oh no 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 i don't I mean, mean that but i mean we don't have control you, over it. no no absolutely not and i and i don't mean that in any in any but way. i mean it's icing on the cake it's icing on the cake and and you you say well how many guys have actually you know uh gone to the finals and called the winning team and, and you know so uh, that part of it was was great and i knew you know coming here that this team was really really good um, and you know, had a chance to, as long as Michael and Scotty were here to to at least get to the finals. You know, every year they were together, um, and, and as it turned out, that's kind of what happened. And so uh, that was again more frosting on the cake um, because not only did I get to see them play in the finals, but I got to see what I considered. Uh, at the time, the the you know the greatest player ever to play in Michael, um, a, a I mean maybe after when Michael wasn't in the league, the best all around player in the league in Pippen, and you get to see all those finals games. So um, it was I mean it was an unbelievably fulfilling uh, journey through that that time period. Um, and, and then on top of it, to have the team win 72 games in one year, and that was something I never, ever thought would, would happen, and not in my lifetime. So. And, and, of course, Golden State broke that record. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's why I was always the one, you recall, you know, that whole year I was like, uh, that won't happen. They, they, they'll get tired, something will happen, somebody will get hurt. They'll, no way will they break that record. Well, they did. Um, the only good news, if you're a Bulls fan, was that they didn't complete the mission by winning the title, even though they won all those games. So, uh, but yeah, I never, I never thought I'd see that again. You know, Neil Funk joining us right here on Timeout Bulls as we're talking Bulls ball and of course the career, the brilliant career, a future Hall of Fame career of Neil Funk. So Neil, during that run, when you saw Jordan. Because you, you you saw Julius, but Julius Prime was really in the ABA, correct? Correct. Yeah, it really was. So what kind of a player, when you saw Michael 
were there ever in your mind comparisons with Dr. J or were they uh, different or were they similar or? A little bit. I, I, I can tell you one thing when I was, I was doing, uh, and, and strangely enough, Philly and Chicago played, I think, two years in a row against each other in the playoffs while I was still in Philly before I came in and uh, Chicago just dismantled them. Uh, both times, but uh, and that was a pretty good Philly team with Barkley and and some other you know guys in his supporting cast. But when I saw you know I I knew Michael was really good, but you don't see him 82 times. You only see him a couple of times yep. a year. Um, and I knew he was really 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 good and a special guy, and he could really score and and so forth. And I remember when I took the job, I, I was playing golf with Billy Cunningham who still has all those ties to the University of North Carolina, besides the fact that uh, he's very close with Jerry Reinsdorf um, because of their Brooklyn ties. Mm -hmm. And then he had the North Carolina ties, so he knew Michael um, and uh, had spent some time with him. And uh, Billy told me, he said, you're not going to believe this when you, when you see him 82 times. And I said, well, how, <clears throat> how much better is he than – is, is he better than Larry Bird? Is he better than Magic? Is he better than, you know, all these guys I had seen through the years? Um, and he said, I, I, he said, all I'm going to tell you is you're going to be shocked. And boy, was I ever. I mean, I knew he was really, really good. But the cool thing about uh, those Bulls teams with Michael was that every night, regular season or playoffs, you saw something you were never going to see again. I mean, it, I mean, it could have been one play, it could have been one shot, it could have been one. I mean, something you were going to see every night that you were probably never going to see again. Something really special. So, uh, as it turned out, uh, I never really compared him to to Julius. I mean, they were they were kind of different players. The interesting thing was while I was in Philly at the very end in those playoff games, watching Pippen dunk was like watching Julius dunk. He dunked the same way with his one-handed, with those huge hands and the ball cocked back. And I can remember uh, turning to Steve Mix, who was uh, my analyst in, in Philadelphia, and saying, that looks just like Doc when, when Scotty would dunk. Um, but I never really compared Michael. I mean, I thought their games were, were really different. So everyone loves to watch a winner. Everyone wants to tune in. And so you have a tremendous run. I mean, the Bulls have a great run. And it's not too far to stretch this that had Michael been Michael in those two years, 94, 95, the Bulls could have won eight straight titles. Yeah, I um, mean. It, uh, we don't know. I get that. But at the end of the Jordan run, the Bulls hit some lean years. As a broadcaster, Neil, take us through that period and how difficult was it when you're winning 15, 17, 21 games, and you've got to make these broadcasts, I mean, you you can't play to the record. You got to play to the game. Well, I, I think the the one thing that that carries you. I mean, obviously, I had been with some other teams that that weren't very good before I came to Chicago. Uh, it was a little shocking here, but the mark I think of a good broadcaster is a guy. Uh, who can you know, take a 15-win team or a 17-win team and still keep people interested as they're listening or watching, uh, more so on the radio. Um, but that you can still 
keep your interest up enough and and find enough things uh, positive things but that's to me is the mark of a good broadcaster they can take a bad team and their games or a bad game and there were a lot of them in that course of those lean years you talked about um, and still uh, do his job effectively so that people wouldn't if some guy was just joining you and just tuning in for the first time would have no idea that that team had only won nine games all year and you were halfway through or whatever, or that the game he was selected to listen to was not a very good game. Um, so um, it, it tested you a little bit, and it was, it was you know, there was, it was like having a bucket of cold water thrown on you um, when you went from Michael, Scotty, you know, th those teams, uh, great, great teams, um, to a team that's going to win – 11, 15, whatever the number would turn out to be. Um, that was, uh, it was tough. You know, I, I just uh, went and I saw a great documentary that uh, Ron Howard, the producer, the former, of course, movie star, put together on the Beatles, and it was on Hulu. And it was great about the formation of the Beatles and that, that four or five year window when they were like, Phenomenal, And I mean, they couldn't go anywhere. It was like thousands and thousands of people they were getting when they did this tour, Shea Stadium, close to 60,000. They were in Chicago at the old Comiskey Park. And in those days, 35,000 was astronomical right. for somebody to see this group. And so they were taking us through that. And I'm wondering, traveling with the Bulls during that period of time, what was that experience like? Well, that it, very similar to what the... the the Beatles must have felt like what Muhammad Ali felt like when he traveled. Um, that I, I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it, and I don't think I'll ever, I mean, in my lifetime, I'll see anything like it again. Did you have I special know, security? Well, Did you they, have to had, go they the had back door of a hotel. Yeah, we went in a lot of kitchens and a lot of back doors, um, even at two and three in the morning. Um, and there was a lot of security um, that would fly ahead. You know, Michael had security guys, and Pip had security guys, and Dennis Rodman had security guys, um, and they would meet those guys at the at the hotel. But there was, I mean, I can tell you, Chuck, that at three or four in the morning, out in suburban Detroit, at uh, some bad. Marriott, or I mean, I don't mean Marriott's bad, but just, mean, just a, hotel. A, a hotel yeah. out in the middle of nowhere, um, and you'd have 300 people standing there at four o'clock in the morning waiting for us to get off a bus coming in from a game somewhere else. So uh, the uh, yeah, it was. I, I mean, it was absolutely incredible, and it, I mean, it was a it was a special. It was special not only to the, those of us who traveled with the team. But I think it was special to a lot of people in Chicago from, I mean, the winning obviously was great, but the personalities, uh, the, the greatness of Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and, and the rest of them, uh, I, it, it was just, it was a whole different feeling almost than you get today, even though, you know, you see, I don't know, I mean, Golden State is so popular, but I don't know that they attract people like that. I mean, that number, sheer numbers of people, little kids at four in the morning. I, I, I've never seen anything like it, and uh, I don't think I will again. Um, Neil, you, you've had to deal also with a couple of setbacks when you're here, your time here in Chicago, and that's with two analysts who, who passed away, um, Derek Dickey along with uh, Johnny Red Kerr. 
Talk about those and two. And Tom Borwinkle. And Tor- Tom Borwinkle, three. three. You're right. Forgive me. Talk about those three and your relationships with all three men and what they brought to the broadcast. Yeah, and you were we were talking earlier about uh, the number of analysts I've worked with, and I've worked with a, a lot in Chicago, and uh, all terrific, you know, people as well as you know their their work, uh, the body of work that they had, and and Derek uh, came uh, early in my career here in Chicago. Tom Borwinkle was my first analyst. And Tommy had another business, and a big business. It wasn't just some little small thing. And it was just wearing on him with all the travel and then having to go in. And he was the owner, president of a large oil company. Um, And so after two seasons with Tommy, who became one of my closest friends, uh, Derek came in. They brought Derek in. He came from Golden State. And uh, Derek was terrific. Former I mean, NBA player, great yeah, start at the for, University of Cincinnati. Played on a great Golden State teams, very, very good player. Um, and a fun guy to be around. Thought he was a chef. He thought, you know, he thought, <laughs> thought he was everything. Uh, and he and I became uh, golf buddies. He was a golf addict, as I am. And uh, so we played uh, probably three times a week in the summers. Um, and uh, so I worked with Derek uh, two years or three uh, I think he passed away the middle of his second or his third year. Is that right? I, I'm, now my memory is gone. But uh, Derek was terrific and, and really good. And being a former player, as was Tom Borwinkle, you know, had some special insights and, and understood the players and uh, what they were going through. Uh, and then uh, Derek, uh, when Derek uh, had his stroke, um, uh, John Paxson came in, and so I worked with John for two years, and he was, you know, great. I mentioned Doug Collins earlier uh, and Chuck Daly. Those three were, in terms of guys who could have been, and Doug obviously is, could have been national analysts. I mean, Pax could have been, and Chuck Daly could have been had he opted, or either mm-hmm. one of them opted to go in a different direction. But uh, so I, so I was with Pax for a couple of years, and then. I worked with Johnny Kerr for a season, and, uh, well, I mean, you know Red, and he and I were, uh, yeah, like, brothers, and uh, we went everywhere and did everywhere, everything together on the road. Um, and so that was losing those guys, and then Tom Borwinkle passing away uh, two years ago, uh, three years ago. Uh, it, those are the kind of things that uh, give you pause uh, because we lost three really, not just uh, former players and, and, and nice guys. These were genuine, genuine people. Uh, Johnny uh, Borwinkle and, and uh, uh, Derek. Derek Dickey. Um, they, they were just genuinely nice people that you would have been friendly with had they had no association with the NBA. I mean, they were... They had enough going on in their lives and, and so forth that it wasn't just about basketball. It was about a lot of other things. Okay, so final final couple of questions, and then uh, we'll let you go. I know, as you mentioned, you're very, very passionate about golf. The best course in Chicago that you Boy, played. there are so, there no, are so the, many. I know you're trying to pin me down. Yes, you're, I am. You're trying to pin me down. I am going to say Butler National. Butler National. Yeah, I mean, it, in terms of hard for me, 
and there are others that are Medina. Okay, but you know, Butler is is uh, uh, to okay. me to me that's the the hardest. Okay. There's so many great courses, Chuck Shoreacre. Okay. I mean, you know, give you, me the the best course you have not played in North America that you I, always Augusta, wanted. Augusta. You have never played. No, no, no Neil. I, I would think with all your contacts. Wait, With all wait, your networking wait. over the years, that you would have been able to pick up the phone Chuck, to someone and say, "I'd like to play Augusta." I wish I could do that, and the only person I can think of to call is my son, who's played it twice and has not invited He's me never to play invited. it. How, no. We got to get well on the phone. Why, why hasn't you would think? I don't. You son, would think. You say, "Dad, you know what? I know this is a lifelong exactly, dream." Exactly. Exactly. Ever talked to your son about that and said, hey, I told him like, that I'm very. I've told him. I've told. But can't you include me in a force? I told him I'm very disappointed in him. That that's the only thing I could tell him. Um, so that would be the the one. So the closest thing is I joined a a golf club. 18 miles from there so if i do get the call to go over there i'll be close you'll be there yeah because i mean it's not this is not a hobby of yours this is no it's my passion you play like jordan would play 36 72 in a day well no i i i could you play 36 you've ever played uh yeah, uh, 54. I you think. played 54, 54 in one day yeah and well i just came back chuck uh i was on a little trip over to Iowa where we played 18 and 18. I was home for one day, then I went down to South Carolina. I played 18 Monday, we're taping this on Friday. Played 18 Monday, 36 Tuesday, 36 Wednesday, and came home on Thursday. So it's a lot of golf in a short time. Well, listen, Neil, we've enjoyed this. Thanks so much for appearing with us today. Our many thanks to Neil Funk, Neil and Stacy, of course, on the TV side do an incredible job. And yes, we will feature, by the way, Bill Wennington on an upcoming episode of Time Out Bulls. But for now, thank you to Neil Funk. Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see how sophistication can be daring in the redesigned Lexus RX. Subscribe to Time Out Bulls on iTunes and Google Play. And if you'd like what you heard, leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until next time, this is Chuck Swirsky. Thanks for listening to Time Out Bulls.